topic this morning is economic history. I'm a historian with some background in economics, so they gave me this topic. And I think it's, I, I think, you know, it's an interesting topic. We need more economic historians who are Austrians, who are, have an Austrian formation. This is an area, I, I think, of, with great growth potential because there are so few out there. In fact, I think there are relatively few historians per se who are Austrian-influenced these days. Uh, David Beto of the University of Alabama was pointing this out on the Liberty and Power blog not too long ago, that we, we actually have a lot of economists now, relatively speaking, compared to the past, we have a lot of economists, but now the number of historians has started to sag. So don't neglect this ancient and honorable profession. This is, uh, this is, is worth pursuing. So I want to talk about a topic, in effect, uh, that occurred to me probably about eight or nine years ago, and I only really wrote it up about two and a half years ago, and that's the general subject of what Austrian economics has to teach historians, because that's part of what I want to talk about today, is okay, so you've learned Austrian economics, and you're a historian, or you're an economist doing historical work, how does this give you an advantage over your peers? It seems like it should, so what is that advantage, and how do you, how do you use it and exploit it? So I finally wrote this up, I gave it as a uh, conference paper in early 2007, and now it's published in the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, What Austrian Economics Can Teach Historians. And I started off in that paper pointing out that in the United States, history became a kind of an official discipline, so to speak. That is to say, a, a discipline characterized by certain professional standards, and it, it became removed from what it once was, which was a field largely of amateurs, dilettantes, people you know, who, who didn't have any particular training but just were interested in some subject and would write about it. But in the 20th century, the profession became uh, kind of snobbish and wanted to, to uh, build up its barriers to entry and so began to claim that you had to have all the special training to be taken seriously as a historian. Uh, I, I went to Columbia University for a PhD, so you'd think I would have some super special training. Here's a little secret I learned at Columbia. There is no special training to be a historian. There just isn't. That's just a scam. Anybody who's remotely intelligent can be a historian, right? I mean, all you have to learn is, you know, how to find manuscript collections. Okay, the librarian can give you a 10-minute tutorial on this. This is not some secret teaching that you need, uh, you know, the Gnostics at Columbia to teach you. <laughs> or or uh, what's, what's the other? I mean, look, look at Herodotus, right? I mean, what... What university did he go to? He, he simply learned how to sort sources and that if he's going to write about the Persians or you know, whatever people he's going to write about, he's going to understand that people who are Persian are going to say pro-Persian things and Persians' enemies are going to say anti-Persian things and you have to sort of sort this all out. Okay, common sense really. But one of the, one of the qualities though that was said to characterize the good historian at a time as I say, in the early 20th century, when the profession was really coming into its own as a professional, uh, you know, as, as a profession in its own right, was that the, the historian needs to be impartial, right? I mean, he can't bring whatever his personal axes to grind are to the study of his subject. So impartiality was one of the key uh, principles that characterized the good historian. Well, what follows from that, in some people's minds, is that a real historian comes to the data unprejudiced, that is to say, unprejudiced by any theory. 
So there were some who argued that the real historian is kind of like the Francis Baconian scientist, you know, who just, who just gathers the data with no preconceived ideas. And then he looks at the data and lets the data tell the story. Now, that's not just a, I'm, I'm not caricaturing this view. This actually was, a, I mean, for example, there was a, a figure named Edward Cheney who criticized the practice in the early 20th century of beginning the examination of historical facts with any theory of interpretation. He said, the simple but arduous task of the historian was to collect facts, view them objectively, and arrange them as the facts themselves demanded. And he said that a good historian is capable of producing a record of facts that, and again in his words, when justly arranged, interpret themselves. Now we get into sort of epistemological questions. I mean, do, do facts interpret themselves? And then, of course, without some lens of interpretation, how do you know which facts are relevant? If you're studying the economy, you know, why don't you study, um, you know, whether it was a quarter moon on the day that the stock market collapsed? You know, why don't you study uh, average toenail length in the country? I mean, if, if really there is no theory of interpretation, strictly speaking, why shouldn't we gather all that data? So obviously, at some level, they can't actually believe what they're saying. And certainly Ludwig von Mises didn't believe it. And he's had much to say about this in a variety of books, not only in his book Theory and History. But Mises wrote, History cannot be imagined without theory. The naive belief that, unprejudiced by any theory, one can derive history directly from the sources is quite untenable. No explanations reveal themselves directly from the facts. So he's responding directly to this type of claim. Mises says, Historical experience is always the experience of complex phenomena of the joint effects brought about by the operation of a multiplicity of elements. The pure fact is open to different interpretations. These interpretations require elucidation by theoretical insight. Now, let me digress for a moment here, because I, I, I want to point out a, a recent example of this sort of controversy about how do we approach the study of history with no theoretical presuppositions or with some body of theory. And one of the risks in uh, translating from German is that sometimes you, you wind up with really, really unwieldy words and sentences. So there is, a, there is a word that Mises once used, at least he used it in German, to describe historians who just try to do their work, you know, just workman, in a workmanlike way, gathering the data and seeing what it tells them. And he referred to the presuppositionlessness of this. That's, well, all right. Well, I, I was sort of told by, and I'm not saying, I don't, I'm not looking to demonize this person. I think this person has done good work. But a journalist in Seattle wrote an article maybe about six weeks ago about my book Meltdown. And precisely, I was amazed. It's like it was preparing for this, this very morning. Because what was his criticism? He says that a good book is written in the following way. You immerse yourself in the facts, see what the connections are, and let the story itself tell you what the explanation is. So this was my fault, was that I went into the study of the economic crisis with a theory, and that this, he's arguing, is, is prejudicing the way I look at the events of the past however many years, and that instead I should be doing what a couple of other authors did, and he's referring to Paul Mwolo and Matthew Padilla, who wrote a book called Chain of Blame, How Wall Street Caused the Mortgage and Credit Crisis. 
And he says that these people are doing what you should do. They looked around and they saw there was a mortgage and credit crisis. And so they started writing about the various incidents that uh, composed it. And then they wrote this book and that that's, that's what a good book is. And he says, this is what, you know, he, he says, you know, uh, see what the connections are, gather the facts, let the story itself tell you what the explanation is. He says, this is what Molo and Padilla try to do. It is what many libertarians ought to learn how to do. Mm. Well, that'd be news to Ludwig von Mises. Now, if we were to take this approach and just gather data and look at it, have it tell us a story, then we would come to the very unsatisfying conclusion that margin trading caused the stock market crash of 1929. And in fact, that is the explanation some people give. Well, yeah, it's true. There was margin trading, and there was the stock market crash of 1929. But maybe there's a deeper question at work here. Like, why were people able to get access to all this money? Like, who, 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 who and why, you know, who, who was making all these, doing all this lending of money, and why were they doing it such that people were able to get themselves into positions like this? That would seem like an interesting question, but then that would lead us into the uncharted territory of theory. We can't have that. Or likewise, I think this critic could probably write for us a very interesting overview of the dot-com boom and bust. But that overview would consist of a series of human interest stories about uh, dot-com companies that, you know, that exploded and they did, they're doing great and they have no profits but their stock price is going way up and it seems like everything's super. And then suddenly they collapsed and people had to go into other lines of work. And then that'd be it. That'd be the whole story. But again, well, why, why did this happen? Were there any factors, any underlying structure of reality that might be brought to bear to account for how this turned out? Now, I notice we have Roger Garrison in the room. He and Gene Callahan wrote an article for the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics applying Austrian business cycle theory to the dot-com boom and bust. So they are basically apparently just shills, right? They're, not, they're just bringing their prejudices to bear. But actually what they're doing is helping us understand what happened because the facts themselves cannot simply tell the story. And likewise, if you're going to tell me that, well, you know, this financial crisis was caused because all these private lenders made dumb decisions, again, I want to know, is there any underlying factor that's causing them to make these dumb decisions? But secondly, Knowing what we know about the way the financial system works and taking the critical eye the Austrian school teaches us to have, how accurate is it to say that we even have any type of private system, right? I mean, it's a, the system is shot through with bailout guarantees and deposit insurance and all kinds of special privileges the banks get to insulate them from dumb decisions they make. So the whole thing is a, is a witch's brew of intervention. So again, that's the sort of eye we're supposed to bring to these things. Now, of course, you've probably learned this week about the German historical school. Late 19th century, there's a dispute between the German historical school, um, especially the one that, the version of the school that comes uh, relatively later that is even more anti-theoretical, and the Austrian school, the German historical school being historicists and arguing that uh, whatever economic truths we might derive are simply confined to certain historical times and places. And are not of universal application. And of course, the Austrian position is very much the opposite, that economic laws are of universal application. And that when you learn the, the law of marginal utility, you realize that no accidents of culture could, could vitiate this. I mean, it doesn't matter if you listen to rap music or you listen to symphonies or if you use chopsticks or forks, you still have marginal utility. I mean, none of this is relevant to, to that. that 
that is a universal law that applies always and everywhere. But the Austrians go beyond even this and say that these laws are not testable. And what they mean by not testable is they mean not that you can't verify them in some sense. You verify them in the way that you verify um, certain, a geometrical proof is through deduction, right? As long as your, your beginning premise is sound and the series of the sequence of deductions you, you make is sound, then your conclusion is sound. So it would not be correct to say that uh, if the minimum wage were raised to $5 million every tenth of a second and unemployment went down, let's say, that that would therefore prove that the minimum wage uh, increases unemployment. The problem is, of course, that we're dealing with, with human society, which is a complex of countless who knows how many factors that work simultaneously, some amplifying others, some working at cross-purposes with others. So if we were to observe a phenomenon like this, we would not be justified in concluding that the minimum wage leads to lower unemployment or that there is no connection between wage levels and unemployment. We would not be justified in drawing that conclusion. And as Walter Block pointed out, even people who claim to be positivists and they gather their data entirely from observation and not from any theoretical presuppositions, they are completely presuppositionless, that uh, even, even those people have nevertheless an inchoate fundamental understanding of how the universe works, such that when they're collecting their data, if it comes back wrong, they know they did it wrong. So at some level, as, as, uh, as Walter says, if you scratch a good positivist, you find a praxeologist un underneath there. So let me elaborate on this, because these are, these are controversial statements, but you know, after a while, I, I think they become pretty commonsensical. Economic theory, Mises says, is the indispensable tool for the grasp of economic history. Economic history can neither prove nor disprove the teachings of economic theory. It is, on the contrary, economic theory which makes it possible for us to conceive the economic facts of the past. Now, this is especially helpful, as I say, for an economic historian. The economic historian is taking economics and history and employing both disciplines simultaneously. Now, most economic historians know more economics than other branches of, of historians uh, do, but nevertheless, it is the generalist historians who tend to write the textbooks. The general, general American history textbooks. It's not economic historians who tend to write them. So when you read the economic history in the typical American history textbook, it's usually a repeat of whatever the previous generation of textbooks said, because the author knows nothing about it and just figures, well, I'll just repeat whatever the consensus seems to be. Or it's sort of like the discomfort that your social studies teacher visibly displayed when you got to the part in American history when you're talking about bimetallism and gold and silver coins. <laughs> They don't know what on God's green earth this whole controversy is about, other than apparently the farmers want silver. But, I mean, they, I, they have no idea. So what are they going to do? They're just going to go back and see what other people have said. And so they, in effect, not having any theory, the argument is that if we bring theory to bear, we are prejudicing the outcome. But if you don't bring theory to bear, you're also prejudicing the outcome, because how are you going to choose which version of the narrative you want? You're just going to go and see which one conforms to your political prejudices. Now, one of my professors at, at Columbia, a distinguished historian, even admitted in a lecture course that he had no idea what caused the Great Depression. He said, I'm going to give you some competing theories, but I have no idea which one is correct. 
And of course, you know, need I point out he didn't mention the Austrian theory. So at that time, I still had enough desire to be the smart alecky kid that I did in fact feel compelled to raise my hand and I explained the Austrian theory. And um, he, he was gracious enough about it, but probably wished I hadn't done it. But he said to us that he had no idea which one was correct. So therefore, he chose the one that seemed most in line with his personal political views. So he chose basically the underconsumptionist thesis that suggests that you know, the free market on its own leads to these imbalances in income that are unsustainable because if poor people don't have enough money, they can't afford to buy the stuff. And then if nobody's buying stuff, the whole thing collapses. He says you know, that he kind of likes that because that implies that we need you know, overlords from Columbia and Harvard to be in charge of deciding who gets what so as in order to keep the economy in balance. See, that's, that's just super. So that was the one he adopted. So he goes into it without any theory, and instead of giving us pure science as a result, right? There's no theory, so the result is pure science. No, the result was pure ideology and propaganda. That's what it is, inevitably. So that's what we got. But of course, you know, I, I sat there sort of in the know going, ah, these poor souls sitting in this room. If only they had read The Austrian Theory of the Trade Cycle and other essays with an afterword by Roger Garrison. Think of the advantages they'd have over everybody else. All right. Now, so without theory, in other words, history just becomes a, just a sterile catalog of discrete occurrences. That, that's all it is. And, and that's not, or as, uh, who was it who said, history is just one damn thing after another? I mean, th that's basically what it becomes. So if, for example, if A leads to B, but you think A inhibits B, you're not going to do a good job as an economic historian. You've got to understand something about the fundamentals. So, for example, there are a lot of monetary histories of the United States that are really not that useful, particularly in the colonial period, because the colonists are complaining about there's a shortage of money. Well, okay, they're actually, I should say, there are some ways in which that statement can be understood in a non-ridiculous way. But there were a lot of people who were making it on ridiculous grounds. There's a shortage of money, uh, and so we need, we need more money created. Well, okay, but if you have the Austrian insight that any supply of money can, in fact, facilitate all transactions. And, in fact, that's not even, I mean, Ricardo made that point, too. It's not, I suppose, a purely Austrian insight, although it's only the Austrians who seem to highlight it these days. But then you can sort of evaluate this. Then you say, well, all right, well, this doesn't seem like a really good rationale for printing up paper money, an alleged scarcity of money. So what else could be at work here? And so that encourages you to dig deeper. Whereas if you simply accept what the people are saying at face value, you're not encouraged to dig deeper. You just take their complaint and go with it. Or Austrian business cycle theory. Obviously, this is very useful to a historian. And Rothbard, in his book, America's Great Depression, makes the epistemological point that you can't simply gaze at sheets and sheets and sheets of data and expect the answer to pop out at you. Again, how do you know what data is even relevant? So how, you're not, he says, this is futile. Instead, you have to begin with a theory and then bring it to bear to your study. So if we see a massive economic downturn, so what, what we're going to start looking for, was there an expansion, an artificial uh, credit expansion that preceded this? We know to look for that because we know that there's a cause and effect relationship. We know that there is a, a causal structure of reality that is at root here that is timeless and that is universal. So we know to look for that. Whereas an average historian has no idea that he's supposed to look for that. 
So he'll say that, well, there was a lot of crazy, mad speculation that was going on, and it led to a bust. And that, of course, leaves us to wonder, why isn't there always crazy speculation going on? Why isn't this going on 24 hours a day in every country in the world, et cetera, et cetera? And incidentally, on the, I've, I've actually heard more recently the argument that, and I didn't realize how widespread this is, that the reason we have depressions, and we see this in the 1920s, is that in the 1920s we had tax cuts. And the tax cuts meant that the rich got to keep more of their money. And the rich do stupid things with their money. They become speculators. And that creates instability in the economy. So really the problem is tax cuts. And so instead we need the government to confiscate large amounts of money. And this is, I, I've cited this, I can give you citations of historians of the Harding presidency who say this, that they don't want, they can't bring themselves to admit that Warren Harding in fact presided over a very healthy economy. When they think he was a big doofus and ignoramus and the fact that he outperforms all the historians they wave incense before, they can't believe this. So they have to think of some way to nitpick. And the answer is, well, he cut taxes and you know, those rich people, they're always speculating. They're just full of that. Well, and so, and the argument was that, you know, that there was a disparity of wealth and the poor didn't have enough and the stupid speculating rich had too much and then you got the depression. But again, if that were true, we'd have depressions in every country in the world all the time. Because the, the argument was, well, gee, the, the richest 5% had 33% of the wealth. That's pretty moderate compared to most countries. I mean, most places, 5% have got 70, 80% of the wealth. And they're not constantly in depression. So the, the, this is what happens when you just take a, a journalist's eye view. And journalism is an honorable profession. But I'm telling you, a journalist with a background in Austrian economics is going to have something much more interesting to say than somebody who just gathers the facts and rolls around in them and expects something to stick. Ooh, that was kind of a gruesome image. I don't know where I got that. All right. <coughs> but not only do we have some understanding of the causes of the business cycle, but also, how come the, the depression in question goes on for so long? Why does it persist? And again, you know, Austrians have this understanding, and again, they're not particularly alone in this, but still, a sense that the market will typically clear, right? You know, we're not going to have uh, huge overhangs of supply forever. The price system is going to work these things out. But when there is an overhang of supply of, of, of a, a factor like labor, for example, we want to know why that is. Because we have an understanding of, I mean, you read Man, Economy, and State, for example. You understand how the system works. You understand how the structure of production works and how, how the market uh, tends to even out rates of return and, and tends to exploit factors up to the point where it would be too costly to do so. And so you want to know, why are there these big pools of unemployed labor? And you're not satisfied to say, well, this seems to happen cyclically, so I guess the free market economy is subject to cyclical swings. End of discussion. Where do they come from? Why aren't we always, why isn't this happening all the time? Why aren't we, don't we, we always have these, uh, these pools of unused resources? So it, again, it makes us look around. It makes us dig around and see, well, what is being done to obstruct the return to prosperity? What is being done to obstruct the employment of these resources. And then you look to the one institution in society that has the ability to do this, and that's the government, or labor unions that have special privileges conferred upon them by the government. I mean, Hayek said in, in Constitution of Liberty that it's like unions are like governments unto themselves. They just do things that no other private party would ever be allowed to do. So we look for these things and we find them. We find them in Herbert Hoover, and we find them in Franklin Roosevelt. And I won't bore you with those details, because many of you already know this. 
or you attended uh, Professor Garrison's lecture on the Great Depression, uh, or you've read some of the relevant literature. Now take, for example, Bob Murphy. Bob Murphy's an economist, PhD from New York University. Bob doesn't know a thing about history, right? I mean, just nothing. That was a joke. Okay. <laughs> Bob's, a, Bob's a good friend. But he wrote this book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Great Depression and the New Deal, and I think he did a better job than any so-called historian with all his so-called training that he got in his secret Ouija board sessions at Columbia. <laughs> because all Bob does is he says, well, all right, uh, I'm looking at an unusual economic situation. I have my tools as an economist, and I'm going to apply them to try and understand what happened. If I can't do that, then my tools are worth nothing. Then I might as well forget this whole, this whole economics discipline. So that's what he did. And he went and he looked at the typical explanations that are given, and then he looked and found the relevant information to smash it. So certainly he smashes the old myth that nobody, no normal person believes anymore about Herbert Hoover being a big uh, um, you know, laissez-faire guy. I mean, the fact is that among all the other interventions of Hoover, among which were uh, artificially propping up uh, wages through uh, political pressure placed on employers, uh, you know, we have the fact that he was, in fact, a big spender. That, you know, we've got a, you know, for example, one, one year under, under Hoover, the, the government took in $2 billion in tax revenues, and the deficit was $2.6 billion. I mean, that's just, this is gigantic. It's unheard of, unprecedented. And we're told that he didn't do anything, and boy, he should have, if, if only Keynes had been able to write the general theory earlier, he would have... Well, what more could he have done? I mean, this, these are the biggest peacetime deficits ever. So you know to look for these things. What is obstructing this? And you see, well, there are disruptions in the international division of labor. There are disruptions in the labor market that are artificially imposed. There are bailouts going on that are subsidizing the imprudent at the expense of the prudent. And then you look under FDR, and he's codifying, I mean, actually writing into law the worst aspects of this and encouraging industries to organize into cartels in which they are entitled, in defiance of the antitrust laws, which were temporarily suspended for this purpose, uh, allowed to establish minimum selling prices. So that is making it illegal to have a sale. You can't have a sale below this price. You're a cutthroat competitor. What are you, anti-American or something? Don't you understand? We're all charging high prices. That's what it means to be an American. <laughs> I, I can't keep track. Every 10 minutes, what it means to be an American changes, right? I mean, like what I'm supposed to be doing and which people I'm supposed to hate or like or whatever. I mean, I don't know. I, get, I need to get some newsletter or something on this. So anyway, so FDR, all through, the, all through the 30s, it's one thing after another. Tax policy, one thing after another. So you're inclined to think that, you know, maybe, maybe... The New Deal is not, uh, it's not that the economy is recovering slowly in spite of it. Um, it's recovering slowly because of it. And ag again, it's because we're inclined, because of our theoretical apparatus, to go out and look more deeply and look, and look beyond what the mere facts alone can tell us. Facts alone are dead, right? You have to enliven them with thought. I kind of like that. I think that's pretty good. You have to enliven them with thought. All right. Now, let's think, about, uh, let's think about another thing. Now, we've also got the fact um, Guido Hulsman has an article in the Journal of Libertarian Studies several years ago on um, counterfactuals in, economic, uh, in, in economics. And what he means by that is that really what we're dealing with oftentimes in economics is we're dealing with counterfactual statements. We're dealing with the world as it is and the world as it would have been in the absence of one change. So, for example, if we say <coughs> the, the minimum, <coughs> excuse me, the minimum wage 
An increase in the minimum wage leads to more unemployment. What we really want to say is it leads to more unemployment, you know, above the market clearing wage, leads to more unemployment than there would otherwise have been. So in a world in which there had been no increase in the, in the minimum wage. Or a society that's based on the division of labor will be more physically productive than one that is not based on the division of labor. So again, we're dealing with the world as it is and compared to a world in which this one factor was not operative. So we're dealing with counterfactuals. We're dealing with worlds that never came into existence. But this is, this is an approach that the historian also needs to use when evaluating certain claims. So for example, we would be told that uh, one great thing about Franklin Roosevelt were all the wonderful public works programs that he established. Because look at all the people who went to work building bridges and whatever else. And now, I mean, there are all, you can find all kinds of crazy stories about silly jobs people got under the Works Progress Administration, like um, chasing starlings off the White House lawn was one job you were, you were paid for. I actually said that on, uh, this is like five years ago, I was on Hannity and Combs, and I said that. And the, the transcript, which is written by somebody who's just you know, desperately trying to write down what everybody's saying, had it come out as chasing starlings from the White House lawn, which, was be, which would be kind of a good Bill Clinton joke, I guess, if you're <laughs> into that. But anyway, but it doesn't even matter if the jobs are stupid. The point is, how can you evaluate if the jobs are stupid? Maybe that is a good use of people's labor. But it's totally arbitrary. There's no way to know that without profit and loss mechanism. And when the institution that is employing them gets its revenues not voluntarily, but by seizing them from people, using the police, well, you can't really tell if there's really been value added, right? If this is something, if this is something people would have spent their money on voluntarily. I mean, it is possible, theoretically, that people were all just about to start spending money on services like this, so that this was all a wash, but I'm inclined to think not. So first you have to say, well, what about compared to a world in which we didn't have this? And this, would, this gets us a little far afield because then we get into the argument about idle resources because the, the sophisticated, the non-crude Keynesian would come back at you and say, well, these resources were all idle anyway, so it's no, there's no real cost involved in, in employing them. That's a separate topic that I, I've dealt with in some other, other articles. But all the same, we're, we call to mind Henry Hazlitt and his amplification of the point that Bastiat makes, of course, in the essay you're all tired of hearing about, what is seen and what is not seen, that it's not enough to say, hey, look at the guys working on the bridge. What might these resources, where might they have been directed otherwise? And what business firms or what streams of spending have now been discontinued because the funding to create this thing seized those streams of spending and redirected them elsewhere. And of course, we know that because governments lack the profit and loss mechanism, the projects they engage in are always economically arbitrary. So it's not simply that, well, we might have spent the stuff on this, but the government spends it on that, and so it all comes out even. It doesn't come out even. It's impoverishing because the government necessarily directs these resources to arbitrary things that are money losers. If they weren't money losers, people would be doing them already. So, th so this, again, this is a way that you can evaluate the kind of uh, normative claims that historians typically fall into making. I mean, if you read histories of FDR, they are shot through with moral judgments. Uh, the, the, even just the use of the word fortunately or unfortunately. Well, unfortunately, this bill didn't pass. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. To say that that's unfortunate requires a whole understanding of how the economy works, that I see no evidence of any comprehension of this elsewhere in the book. So how can you say fortunately and unfortunately? So they're all using some kind of preconception. 
but usually it's just some crude political preconception they always have, or some equally crude superstition they were taught in fourth grade, that the government is their wise overlord, and it always helps to bring about stability. And this is what they bring to the study of history. But we can't be, we can't be so, so careless. I like the way Henry Hazlitt puts it, though. He says that, uh, well, first I'll read just his little passage, but then he's got this, this little line that is kind of snide, but beautifully snide. He says, um, the employment argument of the government spenders becomes vivid and probably for most people convincing once you actually see the people working on, for example, the bridge. He says, but there are other things that we do not see because, alas, they have never been permitted to come into existence. They are the jobs destroyed by the $10 million taken from the taxpayers. Ah, Henry Hazlitt, living in a time when $10 million would be taken from the taxpayers. All that has happened at best is that there has been a diversion of jobs because of the project. More bridge builders, fewer automobile workers, television technicians, clothing workers, farmers. But this is what I like. He says that the very existence of the bridge is usually enough to win the argument, and then these are his words, with all those who cannot see beyond the immediate range of their physical eyes. So all I can see, are, I see the bridge. <laughs> so like these programs are great, are great if you're appealing to a population of drones. I see the bridge, and without this bridge, there would have been nothing else. It would have just been a big old void of nothingness that we would have been plunged into. And he says that, and he goes on, in case we didn't get that he was trying to be snide, um, he says, you know, there are all the things like the unbuilt homes, the unmade cars and washing machines, the unmade dresses and coats, perhaps, perhaps the ungrown and unsold foodstuffs. And he says that um, to see these uncreated things requires a kind of imagination that not many people have. So he's, he's pretty frustrated at this point, I think, with, with people at that point. Okay, all right. Now, another, I think an article is very useful for people to read, regardless if you're going to go into economics, philosophy, history, or whatever, is an article Mises wrote in a uh, Feshrift for, uh, pardon me, Rothbard wrote in a Feshrift for Mises. Uh, 1956. By the way, a Feshrift is a, is a book of essays written in honor of some scholar and, and written by people who are influenced by this scholar or students of this scholar or whatever. And I, I don't know if you, all of you saw the Mises blog, but last night uh, some of the faculty um, had to say, when people were saying, hey, can you stick around and talk, we had to sort of cryptically say, I, I'm sorry, we have an engagement to go to. And the engagement was in honor of Hans Hoppe's 60th birthday, everyone presented him with a Feshrift that's been secretly worked on for the past year, uh, a wonderful book that's now available here at the Mises Institute, um, Essays in Honor of Hans Hermann Hoppe. And the cover is this beautiful silhouette image of him with the hat, you know, which if you're a fan of his on Facebook, it's the hat silhouette image. And it's very rare to see Hans uh, sort of emotional and uh, hugging people not drunk, by the way, actual <laughs> hugging people. So that went on last night, and that was, that was a wonderful little thing. And so we're all glad that nobody spilled the beans and, and blew this story the way a certain faculty member gave away the fact that we were having a surprise party for Doug French the other night. I won't say who. The poor guy sent out an email and forgot that Doug was CC'd and said, hey, anybody needs a ride at Doug's party, <laughs> we'll be leaving. <laughs> but thankfully, the Hans thing was kept a secret. All right, well, anyway, in this Feshrift for Mises, Rothbard wrote an article called Toward a Reconstruction of Utility and Welfare Economics. And this is, I mean, really, the more you read Rothbard, and again, 
there are plenty of people at the Institute in our work where you know we're, we've got disagreements with Rothbard and the journals and and you know philosophically they're all different disagreements. So it is not as if we treat the guy like some cult figure and we all bow down before him. We have little shrines at home with flowers and candles and his picture. I mean that that's the way people want to portray it. That's totally not true. But I mean when the guy is this much of a genius and and makes these contributions, you know you. You know, you acknowledge that, right? I mean, nobody says, hey, you're just some kind of weird sycophant of Isaac Newton. You know, what's your problem? Well, <laughs> you know, sorry. Well, anyway, so Rothbard's essay basically makes this, this, this observation that when we observe two people engaging in, in an exchange, we are, we are justified in concluding that in an ex-ante sense, they are uh, better off than they would have been in the absence of the exchange, or otherwise they wouldn't have engaged in it. Okay. Now that, therefore, we can say their utility has been enhanced. Like we can't measure it. We can't, we can't say by 3.7 utils uh, in the same way that we can't say that I like my iPod 3.7 times more than I like Mugu Guy Pan. Like we're not saying that. But, but we're saying that, you, that um, certainly people are better off. Now it could be that, you know, ex post you say, well, wait a minute, it turns out I can't use this uh, for that purpose and so I made a mistake. But going into it, you only enter into an exchange unless you, you know, if, if you believe you're going to be benefited by it. Well, what follows from this? Well, what follows from this is that a coerced ex in a coerced exchange, you cannot draw the conclusion that overall utility has been increased because interpersonal comparisons of utility are illegitimate. And so you can't say, um, yeah, it's true, I murdered that, that guy, so his utility probably went down, but I took such pleasure in the murder that that offsets it. Right? There's no, it would be totally illegitimate to say that. And then on a smaller scale, there's the old argument of, well, he's a millionaire, so if I take one dollar from him, I mean, I'm sure the marginal utility of that one dollar for him has got to be lower than the marginal utility of that dollar for a poor person. Well, there's a lot, there's a big literature on that. But still, Rothbard would say, you can, this is still not an, uh, a legitimate uh, thing to say. And it, it could be the case that you could have a millionaire... Uh, who is a, a pure Rothbardian anarchist and who is so morally outraged at the principle of wealth redistribution that, in fact, yeah, he actually is worse off than the, than the poor guy is better off. So, I mean, it's not, it's not uh, you can't say that it is conceptually impossible um, that that could be the case. So, any coerced exchange, there's no way you can make any statement about utility that follows from it. Well, what does government engage in if not coerced exchanges? I mean, it just takes your money and, and spends it on something. And so this seemingly abstract economic sort of philosophical point is in fact useful in studying economics and economic history because it has a bearing on how we understand the validity of how national income accounting is, is uh, compiled. Because if you're going to say that government spending is part of our national income and we're going to use this as a kind of rough proxy for how well the country is doing, well, you're including a whole lot of transactions whose you know, utility calculus, such as it is, is uh, indeterminate, right? Or, I mean, people are worse off than they would otherwise have been because they wouldn't have made this transaction voluntarily. And yet we're going to add this up and say, look at how we're just doing super here. Well, this is illegitimate. I mean, it's just methodologically illegitimate to be counting these things when they're coerced exchanges. And so you can't say they are a net addition to anything. There's no... There's no uh, legitimate way to make that claim. So Rothbard instead proposed, and in addition to the other problems with, uh, with figures like GDP, they leave out intermediate goods and they overstate the importance of consumption and uh, 
and consumption-related industries, retail, they leave out a whole bunch of the structure of production because of fear of, of alleged double counting, which is only double counting depending on what it is you're looking to count. They leave out a lot of the, the stuff. But even leaving that aside, Rothbard says instead we should, we should gather something he calls private product remaining, PPR. And this is in, I, I think, an appendix to uh, America's Great Depression. And he says that um, instead of GDP, we should, take, we should start with um, gross, gross private product. And he arrives at gross private product by basically, and these are his words, deducting product or income originating in government and government enterprise. So in other words, the, for example, the payment of government salaries. Deduct that from GNP. That gives you the gross private product. And then from the gross private product, you then deduct the resources. You deduct the resources that government drains from the private sector. So the larger, uh, the larger of the figures, either um, tax receipts taken by government or government expenditures, whatever is larger, you deduct that, and then you get the private product remaining in private hands. And then you are in a better position to evaluate, uh, to the extent that these aggregates are helpful, you're in a better uh, position to answer the questions you should want to answer with figures like this. Now, in turn, something follows from this. There's been a controversy for years involving the subject of World War II and the Great Depression. Now, in fact, I I'm being kind in calling it a controversy. If only it had been a controversy. There was only one side given for years and years, which was, of course, World War II got us out of the Depression. You know, what kind of idiot are you? You know, we had the Depression, then we had World War II, then there was no Depression. I mean, what's, what, what, I mean, how slow can you be? Well, that's not the case, and I know, again, I know a lot of you probably know about this. And I've, I've discussed this in three books now, but a, a lot of us are following uh, Robert Higgs on this, who, key article he wrote in 1992, really began to change the way people thought about it. And, and I mean not just Austrians. He, his thesis on this subject, is now being mentioned in textbooks and, and taken very seriously. And you don't have to dig around for his 1992 article because it's now in a book. And I find that I didn't realize they had, a, had it out in paperback now. Oxford University Press released his book, uh, Depression, War, and Cold War. And it's in there about uh, the myth of wartime prosperity It's uh, during World War II, reevaluating the, the history of, of World War II. And this stuff about national income accounting is, in fact, very relevant because people have been relying on faulty data because they have a faulty economic theory, and so they've been drawing faulty conclusions. Now, let me first insert this, uh, this caveat that there are some people who make a different argument about World War II. They say, well, clearly, relatively speaking, the U.S. was made better off by World War II because everybody else was so devastated that everybody's going to be ordering stuff from the U.S., and that will disproportionately help the U.S. Okay, that's, but that's not the argument that people were making at the time about, and, and since about World War II. The argument was that spending on the, the military buildup and spending on the war itself stimulated the economy, finally stimulated the idle resources into activity. I mean, that's, that's basically the claim that's being made. Now, why is this wrong? And it's, it's not enough to say, although I think to some degree, if you're pressed for time, it's enough to say that if unemployment goes way, way down right after the military draft is instituted, this doesn't really, I mean, do I have to draw you a diagram of this? I mean, if, if I'm going to draft 11 million people into the armed forces at a time when we had 9 million unemployed, what do you think is going to happen, right? I mean, we're going to 
So that is, in fact, the story. I mean, that's the story, yeah. We, we grabbed people, we sent them off to fight, and now they're not listed as being unemployed anymore. Okay, all right, I, I grant that. If, if, so today, if we had a massive kidnapping program, <laughs> we could... So, but, I mean, so that's not really how a healthy economy deals with unemployment. But beyond that, and then we could also talk about, you know, what is seen as what, and what is unseen. We could talk about the ways consumers suffered during the war. We could talk about how private investment and private consumption went way, way, way down, way down during the war, so that you look at, well, gee, who really is benefiting from it? Well, it's people who have government connections. But particularly, I want to point this out. This is, here's, here's Higgs speaking. This is a real economic historian. This is, a, this is a real one who actually understands what's going on. He says, trying to make us realize there's something wrong with GDP data, particularly during the war years. There's something wrong with it. He says, Consider that between 1940 and 1944, real GDP increased at an average annual rate of 13%, a growth spurt wholly out of line with any experienced before or since. Moreover, that extraordinary growth took place notwithstanding the movement of some 16 million men, equivalent to 28.6% of the total labor force of 1940, into the armed forces at some time during the war, and the replacement of those prime workers, mainly by teenagers, women with little or no previous experience in the labor market, and elderly men. Is it plausible that an economy subject to such severe and abruptly imposed human resource constraints could generate a growth spurt far greater than any other in its entire history? Why did it take until 1992 for someone to ask that obvious question? That in other words, we seriously degrade the quality of the labor force uh, on a scale never before seen, and the result is the greatest growth in American history? Why don't we start hacking off people's legs? <laughs> Maybe we'll get the greatest output ever. And he says, further, is it plausible that when the great majority of the servicemen returned to the civilian labor force, some nine million of them in the year following VJ Day, while millions of their relatively unproductive wartime replacements left the labor force, the economy's real output would fall by 22% from 1945 to 1947. So in other words, if you believe the wartime statistics that tell you there was a fantastic economic boom during the war, is unlike anything we've ever seen, then you also have to believe those same statistics when they tell you that the year 1946 was the most catastrophic time in U.S. history. At a time when we started getting the quality labor force back, that's when things really tanked. But if you lived during 1946, you know that's not the case. I mean, who are you going to believe? The, the, the GNP statistics or your own eyes, right? If you lived through that time. So how did this happen? Why are the statistics so wrong? Why are they telling us a story that's so wrong? Well, they wouldn't have been telling us a story that's so wrong if they'd been private product remaining statistics. If we'd actually looked at the real economy of real people, not the economy of bombs and missiles, that are going to be destroyed. Yeah, we're building a lot of stuff that we're then going to go destroy. That'll make us rich. That, that can't really be, right, just on a common sense level. But what Higgs says, and again, this is a very sort of Mengarian type of observation, is that you can't have meaningful market prices in the absence of voluntary exchange. Because it's through voluntary exchange that people's value scales are actually given play. And then the price that we wind up with is, in fact something real. It actually is the result of real people engaging in buying and selling. But a lot of the prices, I mean, given that 40% of the labor force was either 
drafted into the armed forces or were civilian employees of the armed forces or were working in military industries, and given the enormous amount of the economy that was involved in war production, and given that those goods that are produced, they don't have market prices attached to them, well, when you add up all these prices, you're going to get one giant nonsense number. Because, for instance, the price of, uh, you know, this sort of clock, the kind of clock that you might see, you know, sitting on top of some ticking bomb in a Batman series, but, <laughs> but this clock, you know, the price of this clock came about through competitive bidding between buyers and sellers. But the price of some warplane or some tank doesn't come about that way. Doesn't come, it's just, they just decide, all right, you know, we'll pay this much. All right, that's how it comes about. It's not, it's not the free market. So, so these prices, and then there are spillover effects on other prices. These prices are completely arbitrary from a market point of view. They have nothing to do with buying and selling. They have nothing to do with marginal utility. They have nothing to do with price theory. They're just totally arbitrary. They're command and control prices. And yet that's where these national income accounting figures come from. We add up all these totally arbitrary numbers. Prices are not, it's, it's like expecting the Socialist Planning Board to play market and just invent prices. They'd be totally meaningless. So it'd be even more meaningless to take up these phony baloney dream world prices and think you're going to have a sensible figure that results from it. That's where these national income accounting figures came from, from a whole bunch of arbitrary prices summed up. All right, so, so that's that. So again, also, by the way, let me, let me talk about just 1946 briefly. 1946 comes out looking like a terrible year. Yeah, okay, because there aren't as many missiles being produced and all the rest of it. But if you actually look at things people buy, I mean, let's take this crazy view that the economy is actually for the people, right? It's not for the parasites. It's for the people. It's for their comfort and the things they need. If you look at that, you find that the private economy grew by 30% in one year after the war, the greatest single year we've ever had. But that's not what the official statistics tell you, given that they're, they're based on faulty premises, and therefore the historians are telling you the wrong thing. And so it took almost half a century even to crack a little bit of this consensus. And even still, speaking of crack, Paul Krugman <laughs> is, still, is still giving this, us this line that, well, you know, FDR didn't spend enough. It took World War II to get us out of the thing. And now you've got people who are you know, not very well trained in economics, who are sort of right of center or whatever, who argue against, boy, this stimulus package is so stupid and we shouldn't pass it, whatever. And they'll say, yeah, and the New Deal didn't work and whatever. It was World War II that got us out of it. Well, you're giving away the whole argument to the stimulus people who immediately notice this and say, well, what you're saying is that we just need a super, super duper stimulus. We just got to go crazy with the stimulus. You know, that, that's a problem when you don't, when you don't get this stuff. So, in a nutshell then, in short, Austrian economics is useful for historians. And it is, it is because of people like Bob Higgs, who is, I mean, I think one of the best economic historians living today. And I, I, think, uh, I think he deserves a fesh shrift for anyone who's, who's listening. Uh, his, his body of work is extraordinary contribution. Oh, are you going to, oh, is there one in the works? Oh, was there a Higgs Festschrift published? Good for him. Well, then scrap that whole thing. Forget it. That would be a misplaced use of resource. That's wonderful. Good for him. Good for him. Because I remember talking to him once, and he was sort of of the opinion, you know, 
I don't know if my work is going to, you know, people are going to value it. If it's what I thought, how could you be this? I mean, you have changed. You have you have brought about so many vocations into this discipline just from your work alone. So I'm glad. I'm glad that he's gotten these these honors. But I mean, it took all this time to get just to start to crack through because unfortunately people are coming at this with the wrong theoretical assumptions or no assumptions at all or just their political prejudices. So it is only through a sound theory that you can make disembodied statistics finally be able to tell a coherent and accurate story. And so I've got about five-ish or so minutes left for anything you might want to add or ask or whatever. So I saw this gentleman first and then this one. Okay. Uh, what do you think of the use of hypothetical versus, for example, I gave members... Yeah, okay. So the question involves... Um, using sort of hypothetical kind of history, which where I thought you were going with this was, you know, like, what if the South won the Civil War kind of thing? Because then, in that case, I wouldn't have any framework to build up to where I could reach a definite conclusion about what, what would have happened. But in this case, I mean, what Menger is trying to sort of suggest, and then Mises builds on this. Mises suggests that this is how money would have to have come about. Uh, you know, I mean, I guess this is, again, this is an epistemological question, but if Mises' argument is correct that money has to come, out, come about voluntarily, then, you know, then, then it's correct, right? I mean, look, what I would, I'd want to know what are his counterexamples? Because usually when you, when you flip through and you look closely at the counterexamples, they're actually not counterexamples. Like, people will sometimes point to the paper monies of the American and French revolutions as counterexamples. They're not. Because they were initially defined in terms of an existing money. So they were parasitic on an existing money. They weren't just completely out of nowhere. So Mises' point is, is uh, you know, first of all, you know, is, is twofold. I mean, one of the points Mises makes in his treatment is the reason this can't happen is that nobody, it's very unlikely, first of all, and then secondly, impossible. First, unlikely, because if no one has experience with money, it's very, very hard to persuade them have some genius come up and say, no, 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 listen, 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 listen. I want you to accept these, uh, you know, as Bob Murphy has in his example, uh, I want you to accept these totally worthless stones, but I promise you other people will accept the stones for the things you want. Like, I mean, most people would say, what the heck is that? What kind of freakish, pointy-headed intellectual is this, right? I mean, if you, if you have no experience with money, it would be almost inconceivable to just introduce it de novo. But secondly, more to the point, I think, how could people possibly evaluate that money? How could they attach value to it when they don't know what it's worth? There's no way to evaluate what the money is worth. The reason money has to come out of barter is that as a particular medium of exchange is sort of developing, as a commodity is becoming more and more marketable and, and becoming used in more and more exchanges, it is acquiring an array of prices in terms of other goods. It's, a, it's acquiring an array of barter prices. So that therefore, if I know that gold commands this many tomatoes, this many hats, this many pairs of pants, okay, well then I can evaluate what gold is worth in terms of these things. And then gold then becomes the money, well then there's a previously existing array of barter prices that helps me to evaluate the value of the gold. But if somebody simply says, we're going to start using this paper, so here, here's, here's 17 of them, you know, how would I have any way of knowing how I should value it? Should I... Like, how would I even know what my demand for this is? If I don't know how many tomatoes it commands, how do I know? Do, do I want to keep $12 in my cash balance? Maybe $12 is poverty level. Like, there'd be no way to evaluate it. 
And so just from that logical point of view, you'd have to say, well, then, yeah, I mean, how, how, could, you, how could you do this uh, other than, and, and in fact, I think one of the great contributions Rothbard makes in what has government done to our money is to show historically how this has happened, is that there's an already existing medium of exchange. Then governments come into the picture, they monopolize the mint or whatever, they issue paper money substitutes for the precious metal, then they take the precious metal backing away. They don't just come along and say, here's some paper money for all of you people to use. Why don't they do that? You can't do it. So anyway, so I, I would want to know what the guy's counterexamples are and, and, and all, all that. But there's a, there's a guy, um, kind of crankish, I think, named Stephen Zarlenga, who claims he has overturned and refuted Menger's theory of money. I haven't, I haven't read it just simply because I, forgive me for being so superficial, but I went to the guy's website. And you know, when you, there are some websites that as soon as you look at them, you know some, it's like all the crankiest people have the same HTML person. Like everything's on one giant scroll down page with flashing things, with clashing colors and stupid fonts and whatever. And you know, the Illuminati or something like on every one. So I, I admit I haven't, I haven't, I, it's, you know, it's my fault. I haven't looked at the critics, but I don't see how you could sustainably criticize this. All right, let me just take this one, this one really quickly because we're almost out of time. Oh, it's called, um, it's called um, Toward a Reconstruction of Utility and Welfare Economics. And I'm sure if you Google that in quotation marks, you'll be able to get it on Mises.org. Um, uh, the the Feshrift is called On Freedom and Free Enterprise, Essays in Honor of Ludwig von Mises. But you can find the essay Toward a Reconstruction of Utility and Welfare Economics uh, on, on Mises.org. And here's, here's Rothbard, who when the essay was published, he was 30. So he must have been writing it in his late 20s. And I, I mean, it is really such a sweeping, fascinating, bold article for a punk kid to be writing. You know, it's just, it's just astonishing to me. Okay, well, I can talk to people informally because I think we're at exactly at 10 o'clock. So. Right.